As we begin this morning, I, I want you to think what life must have been like if you had been a first century Christian. The church would have emerged into the Roman world, a world full of, of gods and idols. If you would have looked at the Roman Empire, it would have seemed absolutely permanent. That was part of the aim of the empire. And the church would have felt so small and unimpressive. The church confessed and believed that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, is Lord of, of heaven and earth. But don't you think that their reality felt so different? They watched, they experienced martyrdom for their faith. They knew opposition from the government, from the world. And yet the church was there. And the church was advancing. If you were to think about this as if you were watching a play in the theater, this is everything you would have seen happening on the stage as you watched the drama. But of course, in theater, there's so much that is happening behind the scenes. And what's happening behind the scenes is critical to the play. Much of Revelation takes us behind the scenes, not of a play, of history. And that's exactly what is happening in Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20. A chapter not meant to confuse Christians, but to encourage us. Because in this chapter, Christ Jesus gives us, the church, the definitive look behind the scenes to see the true story of the prince of this world the dragon. He shows us what's happening between the resurrection and the return of Christ. We're taken backstage that we might see that truly Satan is bound. The saints are reigning and Christ will bring final judgment to this world. And it's because we know this, it's been revealed to us that the church can confidently accomplish, go about our God-given mission on earth. So it's my prayer, this chapter will encourage you, Christian, to see that Jesus has bound Satan so we can confidently bear witness to Jesus. This morning, we're going to walk through this chapter like a good play and see the four scenes that it presents us, beginning with scene one. Scene one, if you're taking notes, this is the first point, the binding of Satan, the binding of Satan. That's verses one through three, the binding of Satan. Let's read that. 
Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Okay, beginning back in chapter 12 of Revelation, John began revealing to us the great spiritual enemies of the church in this present time. We have now learned the history of and we've seen the judgment of the beast and the false prophet. We saw that last week. Babylon. We've also seen the judgment of those who worshiped the beast and received the beast's mark. And now finally, we come to Satan. Jesus, John, through Jesus, uses Every one of Satan's names there in verse 2. The dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, and Satan. He's frightening in this book. As frightening as he is, we go behind the scenes and we learn he's thrown into the pit for a thousand years, not even by Christ, but by an angel whose name we don't know. The risen Christ revealed in chapter 1, I hold the keys to death and Hades. So now this angel under on behalf of Christ is the one who seizes the dragon and binds him for a thousand years, throws him into the pit, and seals it shut. So we've come to the 1,000 years. And let me say clearly, there are very faithful, some of you, Bible-believing, Christ-exalting Christians who interpret this 1,000 years differently. So the Bible clearly teaches this. It reveals something here. This is not an issue that should cause division among us. This is not something that we put in the statement of faith of this church that should divide us. Some faithful Christians hold the view that Christ comes before this 1,000 years, the millennium. That's the premillennial few. Some hold that he comes after the millennium. That's the post-millennial view. Some, like me, hold that we are in the millennium now. The amillennial view. It's the view that I find most consistent with this text, with the rest of Revelation, and the rest of the scriptures. And I am more than happy, more than happy to talk with you about this after the service or sometime if you want to ask questions or talk through it. 1,000 years is obviously the number 10 cubed. It is a symbol of perfection. I want you to remember back in Revelation 12 that John introduced us to the dragon and then he connected in Revelation 12 the dragons being cast out of heaven as a result of Christ taking his rightful seat as ruler of the nations in heaven. In Jesus' own ministry, Luke 10, the 72 returned from their missionary journey, 
And Jesus said to them, he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And in John 12, Jesus declared, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And what did he connect that directly to? Jesus said, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Jesus told the Pharisees that he had entered the strong man's house and plundered his goods, and he had bound, same, same word, bound the strong man, Satan. The context is important because it demonstrates that with what John reveals from the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, Satan's power has been dramatically curtailed. Now, I want you to see John tells us specifically the purpose of the binding. So that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years are ended after which he's released for a little while. John is showing us that during this present time, unlike before Christ came, the power of Satan to deceive the nations has been limited by God. Until this time in history, for Christ, one nation in particular receives revelation from God and lives under the knowledge of God. This time period we're in now is different from the past generations when, as the Apostle Paul preached, God allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. In other words, the binding of Satan means the gospel will go forward because Satan has been bound. His ability to deceive the nations is not what it once was. Don't take for granted what happened after Christ ascended to heaven. Suddenly, throughout the Roman world, people from different nations and backgrounds began to believe in the Messiah promised to Israel. This Messiah who suffered the most shameful death in the Roman world, a criminal's death. And for literal millennia, thousands of years, the nations had walked in darkness. And suddenly, after Christ, the gospel was, the gospel is, really going forward. Satan is bound. This is what we know is happening behind the scenes. So John, throughout this book, has made very clear Satan still has a great deal of power. He can persecute. The dragon causes governments to serve his purposes he has power over Babylon, the world. But the finished work of Christ means he cannot deceive the nations as he once did. Does this mean every single person will believe in Christ? No. It does mean the church is confident the gospel will triumph among God's chosen people among the nations, and that little by little, the gospel will go forward. I think we take this for granted. Our different nations and backgrounds, the fact that many of us 
would have come to believe in the Messiah promised to Israel was unthinkable thousands of years ago. Satan, binding in this sense, means he cannot deceive the nations any longer as he once did. He's on a leash. And on that leash, he can do a lot of harm, but he cannot deceive Christ's sheep. And he cannot stop the forward march of the gospel. Christ has bound the strong men, strong men. He's cast him out. Now, I hope you see what precious knowledge this is to the church then, the church now. This reality of the binding of Satan, it doesn't just encourage us, it's the basis for the global missionary work of the church. Satan is bound. The gospel is not bound. So we go to the nations, we are confident on the basis of the word of Christ, Christ's sheep will hear his voice. Satan is bound. He cannot deceive the nations in the same way any longer. So practically pray for the nations on the basis of this to be saved, that they would no longer be deceived because of the work of Christ. Pray also, as we've just done, for God to raise up laborers for the harvest because we know the gospel will triumph among the nations. And take risk for Christ's name. Now, when you risk, you expose yourself to danger. But brothers and sisters, God never takes risk. He is ruling in control. You can take risk because God never takes a risk. Our decisions can involve and expose us to danger and uncertainty. God's plans are never uncertain. It's in this way, I would hope that this knowledge of the millennium would be not abstract to you, that it would actually fuel you in evangelism. Your knowledge of the binding of Satan means that you can be confident the gospel will go forward, it will triumph, so you can speak of Christ to the person from the unreached people group or to your friend at work, your colleague or family member. You know what is happening behind the scenes. Also, I want you to see clearly, wherever you land on this, God's sovereignty over Satan. This is not a dualistic view of the world, two opposite and equal forces. We see here that Satan is on a leash. We see that in Job. We see that in Revelation 20. He's never equal with God. He hates this, but he's always a tool used for God's purposes. So we as Christians make mistakes when we obsess over the demonic realm, when we blame everything on the work of the devil, and we err when we act as if the demonic realm is not relevant. Revelation reveals to us that Satan and the demonic have power and influence in this present time, but it's not ultimate. It's all within the boundary lines, the sovereignty of God. Notice also that Satan is not released for that little while until the time and in the manner 
of God's choosing. He works under God's plans. So think about what you fear. Does that reveal that you understand all power and authority is under Christ or not? Some of you are coming from spiritual backgrounds or in a spiritual belief in which the work of Satan and the demonic looms really large. It's big to you in your mind. And I would hope that you would see from Scripture the power and the authority of Jesus Christ right now in the universe. This text is taking us behind the scenes so that we can see the world as it really is, so that we can see that everything that is happening on the main stage of this world is not what it appears to be. So I want you next week to live and to bear witness as if Christ really has entered Satan's house and bound him because he has. You can be confident in Christ. You can take risks in Christ. You can enjoy Christ because of this. You've seen the full picture in scene one, the binding of Satan. Let's go now to scene two. Scene two, the reign of the saints, the reign, R-E-I-G-N, of the saints. Verses four through six. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. I imagine that you can call to mind maybe a time in your life or a time when people you were around were in circumstances that were dire and dark, but no one seemed to want to face reality. Nations that are in a, a war they're not going to win. Businesses in in financial trouble. Someone who's sick, acting like nothing in the world is wrong. This world is full of people who would rather live in illusions than face reality. This is John transforming our view of reality. How? He's taking us behind the scenes to show us that the death we see on the stage of history is absolutely nothing when we look backstage. The Christian's hope, the Christian's confidence in view of death is the exact opposite of much of this world. It's not an illusion. It's based in rock-solid revelation from Christ. What does John see? He sees thrones everywhere else in this book. Thrones are always present in heaven. Who's on the thrones? 
Those given authority to judge, specifically souls, not physical bodies, beheaded for the testimony of Jesus. Those who had suffered with Christ on earth are reigning with Christ in heaven. Those who had not worshipped the beast received its mark. This is a vivid picture of the suffering church on earth now reigning with Christ in heaven. And it's not just those martyred. It's all Christians. It's the picture of a martyr church, a suffering church. Brothers and sisters who've died by or for their faith, Stephen, James, Paul, Jim Elliott, Warner Grunwald in Afghanistan, nameless Christians, nameless to us, not to Christ, kidnapped, imprisoned, killed for Jesus. Faithful Christians whose lives demonstrate they did not bow their knee to the beast. What are we told is their reality? What was the early church told is their reality after death? Life. They reign with Christ for a thousand years. John is, is saying church on the other side of death is, is life. He's, he's changing our eyes and the posture of the church. If, if death is the best hand that this world can play, and it is, we know we're always holding the winning hand. I would understand this coming to life and reigning in verse 4 to be the, the intermediate state, the state of all of those who faithfully die in Christ. I think John is once again showing us the, the same reality he's already shown us from a different perspective. It's in this same period in which the gospel is going forward. Christ's people are suffering. Satan is bound. He cannot deceive the nations. The church will suffer. Christians will pay the price with their lives but they will reign with Christ. He also shows us in verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. So, Christians can disagree. I think the first resurrection here is spiritual. It's the intermediate state. The rest of the dead not coming to life until the thousand years ended refers to the physical resurrection of all people. Believers, non-believers, Christians, those who aren't Christian, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. It's one of the seven blessings of this book we are to remember. If you share in the first resurrection, this reigning with Christ over you, the second death has no power. So John speaks of the first resurrection and the second death. Do you remember when the risen Christ addressed the church at Smyrna? Back in Revelation uh, 2, you can go back to that. That was a suffering, martyred church. And what did Christ say? Say, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Jesus taught about the second death. Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's the second death. Body, soul, in hell. Jesus said, fear that. The first resurrection that John reveres here is spiritual. It is souls reigning with Christ. The second is physical. 
We are raised forever, body and soul, as we've just sung, to be with the Lord. The second death has no power over those in the first resurrection because we reign with Christ until Christ's work of redemption is over. Even more, we're priests of God, Christ, priest kings as we were created to be, clothed in white, righteous, as we wait for God's redemption plan to be worked out fully. So scene two here says to us clearly, Christian, church, do not fear death. Don't be hopeless in the face of death. Churches endured this terrible reality of Christians dying and suffering for their faith. And here this changes our view to show us the the true story that what appears to be the victory of this world is, is really the victory of Christ and the saints. We might be viewed as a people who believe in a fairy tale. This isn't a fantasy. We live in a world right now, R.C. Sproul said this so well, that believes in justification by death. Not automatically. When you die, you are in a better place. Somehow your life, your faith in this life never mattered. That's a fairy tale. That's an illusion. This text makes clear two realities. First, those who reign with Christ did not worship the beast. They were owned by the lamb, by Christ, not the dragon, not Satan. There's a real justification by real grace, by real faith in the real and risen Christ. Secondly, it makes clear the second death is coming. It's not a fairy tale. The risen Christ has real authority. It's not private. It's public. And he will exercise that authority. He will cast bodies and souls into hell. I would challenge you. I would hope you would listen if you're not a Christian to consider whatever it is that you believe about death, whether what that is comes from a trustworthy source. Can you rely on it? Is it this world? Is it your friends? Is it something else? Is it trustworthy? I think this this world so easily, it naively says, death just means you're in a better place. And it's the same world that does all it can to cause us to avoid thinking about death, to live as long as we can. This world has tried to clean up death, to sanitize it. We all know death is terrible. Body and soul separated from each other. And here is death being clearly presented as terrible and at the same time, something Christ has defeated. It's the beginning, not the end for his people. Please consider what the scriptures are saying here about death. This world spends its time living in fear of the first death and it barely gives a thought to the second death. I hope this will wake you up to the reality and the seriousness of death. I have a book here that we have, and I'm happy to give this to you after the sermon. What happens when I die? Questions about heaven, hell, and the life to come. If you want to think about that more, it would be a joy to give that to you and to get more for you. Others of you have questions.
For you, brothers and sisters, we know the whole story of death in this present age. When we see tombstones and graveyards that are only telling us one side of this story, here we're seeing the other side. Our brothers and sisters are reigning. There's no amount of unbelief in this world that can change or reverse that. This means we are preparing for life, not death. Life is coming. Jenny and I first married. Um, Jenny met met with an older woman, a saint named Marlene. Marlene was precious. She was Christian, had very serious cancer, and Marlene was dying and would die. She had children, and Marlene never, ever avoided death. She talked to each one of her boys very seriously before she died about her death. She spoke to our church about her death and her confidence in Christ. Marlene lived and knew what it is for the Christian to say, death is not dying. And it isn't. This is why the Christian church rejoices. This is why we pray for brothers and sisters to cross borders and cultures for the sake of the gospel. What the world considers a waste, Christ says is blessed and holy. This gives us all comfort who have lost people we love who are in Christ. This year, in the years past, this gives us all courage to bear witness. Our Savior can tell us the reality about death because he tasted death. He went into death. Death could not hold him. And it will not hold us. Death is defeated. That must change the way we think about death. And it must change the way we think about our lives. That's scene two, the reign of the saints. Let's look at the third scene, the judgment of Satan. The judgment of Satan. Verses seven through 10, the judgment of Satan. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Once again, John is, is, is showing us the same reality from a different vantage point. We saw this last battle last week in chapter 19. We saw it in chapter 16. We saw it there beginning in verse 12. We, we saw that unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon and assemble the kings of the world for the battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Here is that battle again, except this time we're focusing specifically on Satan and his destiny. This, this period, the thousand years are ended. And as we saw in verse 3, Satan is released. What he couldn't do throughout the age, deceive the nations, he has a power that God permits at that time. I, this is the same reality that John described back in Revelation 11. There, it's revealed that after the church had 
finished its testimony, gospel proclamation, the beast rises from the pit and makes war on the church. Satan will be released. All of it under the sovereign hand and plan of God. These nations at the four corners of the earth, that's referring to the whole globe, the four points of the compass. And Gog and Magog, we saw this same enemy last week in Revelation 19. It's taken from the prophet Ezekiel, chapters 38 to 39, this mighty army there pictured as opposing God's end time renewed people. And look how John is interpreting the prophet Ezekiel. Worldwide opposition to God's global church. The gospel's gone forward. Not one nation. They marched, verse 9, over the plain of the earth. It, it, it's the plain of the earth. It's, it's symbolic. They surround the camp of the saints of the beloved city. Here's a picture of the organized world against the church, the organized people of God. So to this point in history, there will have been, praise God, a worldwide missionary advance. The gospel will have gone global. But again, we see at the end, there will be great intensification. The whole world gathered for this battle. The saints surrounded the church, decimated in one sense. The outlook is bleak. But what is God giving the church? He gives us a look behind the scenes. Satan's releasing is under the sovereign authority of God. All of this is God's doing. And this battle that will appear so overwhelming to the church in the world's favor is once again anticlimactic. In the verse 9, fire comes down from heaven. Devil thrown into the lake of fire with the beast, the false prophet. They're tormented day and night forever and ever. The dragon's day is over. It's done. This is remarkable. Satan goes from being bound to being judged forever. June 6, 1944, the Allied forces in World War II launched the largest seaborne invasion in world history. It's codenamed Operation Neptune. We know it as D-Day. They would liberate France, ultimately Western Europe. It was the foundation for victory in World War II. It was critical. Every battle after that in view of this ultimate victory. General Eisenhower said to his soldiers, your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, battle-hardened. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. Brothers and sisters, this is the confidence that we, the church, have in view of the cross. Our D-Day. Our enemy is well-trained, equipped, totally hardened. But we have confidence in Christ, his victory on the cross. We know the outcome. And here, as powerful as the dragon is, clearly one little word will fail him forever. So take whatever it is you fear, whatever it is you worry about, whatever that is, you must spend time thinking about it. You, you dwell in it because it's your fear. You realize all that time you spend dwelling in your fear, 
In your worry, it's time that you could be spending meditating on the power, the authority, the glory of Christ. True spiritual reality so that you might not worry. Whatever that is, your future, maybe it's other people, whatever that is, you are in your mind thinking so much more about your fear than what God has plainly revealed to be true about the world. Spend time, fight for time to think right thoughts about God rather than what it is you fear. If you know the outcome of the final battle, surely your fears are not greater than our God. What you fear is small, insignificant compared to God, the judgment of Satan. And let's go now to the final scene, the judgment of the world the judgment of the world, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This truly is the very final scene of history. In one way, as one teacher said, verse chapter 6 through 19 reveals God's judgments in history. And now here we come to God's judgment on history. It's sobering. We see the great white throne. So powerful, terrible is God's presence that Earth and sky flee away. It's the end of this old creation, this age, this order. This is the beginning of something new. And the judgments that come from the throne are the center stage. No one is exempt or excluded. There in verse 12, John sees all the dead before the throne. No one escapes. Verse 13, the sea, death, Hades, all forced to give up their dead. How great must this judgment be? How much greater must the God be who carries out this judgment? This is the one and only bodily resurrection of the dead in history. The books are opened. It's exactly what we saw Daniel saw in his vision. Thousands, thousands stood before the Son of Man. And the books were opened. And notice what John says twice in verses 12 and 13. Each of the dead judged according to what they had done. So this is a teaching, a final judgment. There will be a judgment according to works. Paul teaches that we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. How are we to understand this? 
First, you must see clearly what you do matters eternally. It would be wrong to conclude from the judgment of works that works determine our salvation. The judgment of works will reveal whether we knew Christ savingly or not. We will give an account to the Lord for our lives as Christians. And this judgment will also be for those who are not Christians. Your works will matter. God, the righteous judge, will act justly, righteously. I think for us as Christians, this really should, as Aaron prayed, cause us to live soberly, righteously, aiming for growth in godliness during this brief time we live in exile. It is good for this judgment to come to our minds. It teaches us wisdom. It teaches us to steward our days. It teaches us how we live as Christians matters. And at the same time, Christian, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Wonderfully, John sees another book, the book of life. The names of God's own, those who have repented and trusted in Christ. The book of life assures us that salvation is all of grace. The judgment of works does not undermine what the scriptures clearly reveal about salvation by grace. In his lengthy book, The Christian in Complete Armor, William Gurnall wrote, We must come to good works by faith and not to faith by good works. Faith is the root. Good works are the fruit. Never the other way around. The judgment of works means that your stewardship of your salvation as a Christian matters. It matters. And the judgment of works teaches that if you're not a Christian, God will not overlook your deeds. Your fruit will expose your root, not just what you did deeper, why you did what you did. Self-glory or God's glory? Notice John sees before the throne death and Hades thrown into the lake of fire, the second death. Who is judged and sentenced to the lake of fire? Anyone whose name is not written in the book of life. If death and Hades will not be able to stand before the living God, how do you think you will stand before the living God? God makes no apology for his judgment here. He is right as the righteous and just creator to judge his creatures. What will you offer up to God on this day of judgment? The scriptures reveal that this God who will judge is the same God who freely offered up his son to the world. His son was freely offered up for sinners to save and redeem sinners. God's judgment is coming. And yet in Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross and his resurrection, judgment has come. 
Each of us is guilty before God. We've sinned against God. We deserve his just judgment. But God has demonstrated his love in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ was raised. Christ defeated death. Christ has authority over the second death. So for this coming judgment, the merit you need, the works that you need are not inside. They're outside. They're all in Christ. Come to Christ. Repent. Believe in Jesus Christ. You can find life eternal in Christ. And you don't have to fear the judgment. Brothers and sisters, we don't have to fear this judgment because of the work of Christ. And yet this judgment should, should, should spur us on to pursue holiness. And that pursuit is the pursuit of joy. It's not drudgery. It's why we're helping each other in a body together. We want to live in view of this day. Uh, this past week, here's how you encouraged me. I've heard stories of how some of you have encouraged others who are in despair. I've heard how some of you have labored together to share the gospel. I've heard stories of how some of you have taken the gospel to people who have never heard the gospel. I've heard stories of how some of you have studied God's word together or have known friendship together and the joy of that in Christ. All of that God has used in my life to encourage me. How we encourage each other and help each other in this life in view of this day. We take this coming day seriously. And so we're holding out the gospel in view of it, and we are helping each other walk faithfully together in light of it as we bind ourselves together. But we do not have to fear it. Christ has taken our judgment. There will be no Christians in heaven in whom Christ is disappointed, in whom Christ is ashamed. He died for us. Will he not fail to own us before the Father? And remember... The one seated on the throne, the God of heaven and earth, is the same God who has worked all things together for our good to bring us to that day, to that throne. Don't fear, Christian. Live in joy in pursuit of the holiness and the righteousness that is yours in Christ. What have we done in this chapter? We've walked through these four scenes that we might see what is happening behind the scenes of history. And John means for all of this to affect our lives and conduct in this world as we are on the stage of life in this world. Satan is bound. He will be judged. His time is short. The saints who have gone before are raised with Christ. And the God who will judge this world is our loving Father in Jesus Christ. It's these realities that give us confidence to live without fear of death or the dragon and to take risk and to bear faithful witness for Christ's name. Let's pray. Well, we pray that your word would be applied to our hearts this morning, that you would increase and strengthen our faith and to give faith where there is none. Lord, we praise you that Christ has triumphed and that Christ is sovereign over the dragon. 
Help us, we pray this next week, to live in confidence in view of this. In Jesus' name, amen.